Let's turn our Bible this morning, shall we, to the book of Hebrews and to chapter 3 of Hebrews. We have, of course, been, uh, have inserted ourselves into this book and, uh, well, there's some fascinating um, territory that we're going to cover as we go through uh, the book of Hebrews. Last week, um, <clears throat> Jack took us through the, the, uh, the chapter 2 and, um, you know, we, we have this word therefore comes up a few times and it comes up a, a number of times throughout uh, the beginning of each uh, chapter break and a few occasions and it's always a good uh, thought and we, we hear that word therefore, we realise it's, it's building on that which has already gone before. It's connecting and moving along. And so the, 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 uh, the flow and the thought continues on through the book as the writer to Hebrews is wanting to develop uh, certain points. But the big picture, of course, is that the, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers. Uh, and, and these are people who had grown up and had been trained in the religion of the Hebrews in Judaism. And so they were used to having a high priest. They were used to the, the ceremonies in the temples. Uh, they were used to all the regalia and the worship conducted by the priesthood. They were used to the high priest going in on the Day of Atonement and making atonement for the sins of the people. And, and, and now the writer is going to declare a number of things that address that, but how things have changed. how that all believers have a high priest, and in time he's going to show the superiority of our high priest over the priests who were after the order of Levi. But for the time being, here in chapter 3, the writer is going to show us the superior or the superiority of Jesus over Moses, through whom the priesthood was established. And so in other words, God established his house, which is a spiritual house, through Moses. And it was through Moses that the tabernacle was set up and the dimensions declared and the ceremonies, etc. But now he's going to show the superiority of Jesus over Moses. And so it begins at the beginning of that first verse. Let's just read the part of it. Um, therefore, you know, in, in light of the previous paragraphs and, and, and verses and chapters, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So let's just pause there for a moment. Uh, we've been left with the picture of Jesus as our heavenly high priest. And since this is true, it teaches something about who we are. You see, understanding of who we are in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done is essential for a healthy Christian life. It keeps us from the depths of discouragement, which in many ways is what the Hebrew Christians were facing. And we touched on this at the beginning of, of the introduction to Hebrews. Is the, 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 the Hebrew believers were in somewhat of a dilemma and, and we're struggling and, and things weren't perhaps exactly as or how they thought they would be. And, and they were being tempted to go back into Judaism. But knowing who we are in the light of Jesus, that, that's, that's for us today. It's important that we know that. Who are we in the light of what Christ has done? Those early believers are not alone. You know, the original recipients of this letter, they were not the only followers of Christ to feel a bit down in the mouth when things weren't going as they thought. And so this message of Hebrews is just as applicable to us today. Those of us here living 2,000 odd years later, it's just, we are just as capable of going down the wrong path as those folks were all that time ago. 
And so you don't have to be a 2,000-year-old Jewish Christian to struggle with the issues being addressed. You just have to, you need to be a follower of Christ today. We are holy brethren because our heavenly holy priest is, as we read back in the last chapter, not ashamed to call them brethren. Chapter 2, verse 11. And so that should bring a degree of blessing and encouragement. That Jesus called his people, he calls us his holy brethren. Partakers of the calling or the heavenly calling. Jesus is committed to bringing many sons to glory. We also saw that in the previous chapter. And so we're partners in this heavenly calling, you might say. It should indeed bless you and, and encourage you to press on through difficult times and trials, to know that, yes, being a part of this calling, there is a job to do. And the verse continues on, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And so uh, here it is, you know, what are we to do in light of, of all of this? Consider the apostle and high priest. And so we often don't apply this word uh, apostle to Jesus, but he is essentially our apostle. The Greek word uh, for apostle means something like ambassador. In this sense, Jesus is the Father's ultimate ambassador. God had sent a message of love so important, he sent it through Christ, the, the, the sent out one. So let's say you work for a uh, big multi-international corporation or whatever, and the person who holds the highest position in the organisation shows up at your office, he knocks on the door, he's come from who knows where other part of the world, and he's come to visit you particularly to discuss a project that he wants you to do. How much more weight would that have and how much more weight would that carry you know, than just receiving a memo from your local supervisor down the hallway? I think the, the, the thrust here is that, hey, you know, Jesus is our great high priest. Consider that God loved you so much that he sent the ultimate messenger, Christ, for you to pay attention to. So you may pay attention to God's apostle, Christ Jesus. God has chosen his original uh, ambassadors for the church we, we think of them of the original 12 uh, God chooses ambassadors in a less authoritative sense today for sure but there's also a sense in which we're all ambassadors for God as well Jesus is the one though who supremely represents us also before the Father and who represents the Father to us so God cares for us so much that he put the, the ultimate uh, mediator the ultimate high priest between himself and sinful man. That's how much God cares for you. That God loves you this much and that if such a high priest as Christ has been given to us, we should honour and submit to this high priest who is, of course, Christ. And so Jesus, the ambassador and the mediator of our confession, as is spoken of here, uh, and it was a confession. It was made uh, both with the mouth. Matthew 10 speaks about that. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father. And of course, with the life, Romans 10, 9, we read that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The idea, well, it's more than just lip service. There is something deeper. That confession, yes, that Jesus is God. Who was faithful, verse 2, to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So we see the comparison with Moses here. That, that's the point that the, the, the writer is wanting to get across. Uh, when we consider the, the faithfulness of Jesus, it makes us understand that he will continue to be faithful. And he was faithful to God 
who, the Father who appointed him, he's also faithful to us. And this should bring a very real experience of blessing and encouragement to you today. That God is faithful. That Jesus is faithful. Just as Moses was faithful in all his house, as the writer puts here, he indeed showed an amazing faithfulness in his ministry. Uh, Moses did. But Jesus showed a perfect faithfulness surpassing that of Moses. You see, the, 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 the Israelites were, were, were looking back and they were putting Moses on a pedestal. Wow, what a great guy he was. And, and the, this, the, the thrust in this chapter is to say, yeah, Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. No point going back to the stuff of Moses and missing what is even greater. And the whole thrust of this point is the superiority of Jesus over Moses. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, the beginning of verse 3. So Moses had a truly special and deep relationship with God, didn't he? He received much glory from God. It's seen in his shining face experience. After spending time with God there on the mountain, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, there he comes with the two tablets of stone in his hand. Now I can imagine carrying those two heavy tablets of stone. He might have been red in the face, but there was something more to it. He was shining with the glory of God. And, and the people recognised that. And his face was shining while he was talking with them. He had a special and a deep and meaningful relationship with God. Moses spoke to, well, sorry, God spoke to Moses. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses did. And so here's the point. Even though Moses had this tremendous relationship, speaking about Jesus, he had even more glory than Moses. Jesus received far more glory from the Father. Think of his, at his baptism. Jesus had been baptised. Jesus came up out of the water. The heavens opened. He saw a spirit of God. There was spoken of in Matthew. They're sitting like a dove and landing upon him. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. He never said that about Moses. You see the point that the writer is wanting to make here, that, that Moses is a good guy, <laughs> but Jesus is far superior. Why did Jesus receive more glory than Moses? Because Moses was a servant in God's house. But Jesus is both the builder of the house and also a son in it. And so we read those next few verses, carrying on in verse 3. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honour than the house, for every house is built by someone. But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now the writer uses a piece of plain logic here. Firstly, every house has a builder. That should not shock anyone. If it does, come and see me afterwards. <laughs> if I were to show you a house... And we're walking around it and you say, well, who built this? And I said, well, <laughs> kind of interesting you say that. You see, there was this big storm. And, and everything was shaking. And, and the, some of the, the, the trees sort of fell down and, and there was an earthquake and some rocks kind of blew out of the ground. And would you believe it? Here it is. And you'd say, oh, yeah, come on. That's a, you're a funny kind of guy, aren't you? Now, come on, who did, who did you know, tell me? Who actually built it? No, no, I'm serious, I'm serious. And, and you can imagine the, uh, the fun and games we could have uh, down that road. Every building has a builder. Now, on, as we, you develop that thought, I could also take you around some buildings that, that, although they are different, you could see a similarity 
because it was the same architect who designed them. The building took on some of the characteristics of the designer and of the builder. Now, the writer's not really touching on this, but I thought, you know, hey, it's a good opportunity to, to just think about this idea for a moment. It's an interesting parallel that Christ as the builder of the church, you would expect to see his characteristics displayed in the church. The church is not a, a builder built by man. The church is built by Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. Remember he asked his disciples, hey, who does men say that I am? And they had a few different ideas. And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus said, well done. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, not on the rock of Peter, but on the, on the, on the confession that, that, Christ, that, that Jesus is the Son uh, <clears throat> of the living God, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You know, the church is not going to be wiped out until God removes it. It will always be there in some form. But the point is, it is the church that is built by Jesus Christ. A church should reflect the things of God. What are the characteristics of Jesus? Uh, well, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. You could go through 1 Corinthians 13, you talk about the characteristics of love, it remove, remove love and put Jesus' name in there, and, and it fits. Those are some of the characteristics for sure. That's what should be seen in the church. But that's an aside. The point that the writer is making here is that Moses was a member of the household of God, but Jesus is the creator of that house, worthy of greater honour. It's a bit like, you know, looking at the house that you're very impressed with. You wanted to know who built it, and eventually I'd tell you who did build it. And so you go to that builder, and you say, well, I, you know, I'd like you to build a house for me because I... I've seen that one that you did down the road and it's fantastic, but can you show me the hammer that you used? Can I see your hammer? And, and the guy gives you your hammer and you, ho you hold up the hammer and say, oh, hammer, what a great job you've done of building this house. You know, that would be as crazy as, as, as you could imagine, but the idea being that it's, it's, it's not the instrument, it's the designer, and in and, and a somewhat of a, a crude illustration, I guess, but, but Moses is as sort of inferior. He's not the one who built the house. He was part of it. It was Jesus. And the point with all of this is to hold up Jesus as greater. Moses was, a, 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 was faithful in his house as a servant, but Christ as a son was over his own house. You see, the rabbis considered Moses to be the greatest man ever, greater than the angels, but the writer of Hebrews does nothing to criticise Moses. He's not saying Moses was sort of a bit of a ratbag or anything. He does nothing to criticise Moses. Moses is a great guy, but he looks only to properly exalt Jesus. Moses was a faithful servant. He was never, however, called a son in the way Jesus was. We are part of Jesus' household, notice, if we hold fast. And so the writer to Hebrews is encouraging those who, who felt like turning back. He was helping them to hold fast by explaining the aspect of persevering. And so here we have the exhortation to perseverance. Perseverance isn't something that we naturally like to get too excited about. It can be a bit of a drag, persevering in anything. I can think of times, you know, persevering through a game of rugby when you're getting hammered and thinking, man, you know, we're only 20 minutes into the first half. We might as well just go back to the changing rooms now. But there's another whole 60 minutes to go, you know. So, um, you know, you're fighting against that desire to not persevere. 
Or you, you, you're working on a project and, and whatever it is, you, you're digging a hole and the sides keep caving in. You know, wherever you're at, you, you've got to persevere, but you really, everything is screaming, just leave it and go back to what you're doing before. So persevering is something that we have to really work at. And so here the exhortation of perseverance, there was a danger and it was happening that some of the Jews who had come out of Judaism and all of its traditions, they were beginning to slip back into that. They were going back into the traditions. They were going back to the keeping of the law as a basis of their righteousness or their right standing before God. See, it's a lot easier and simpler to do that. If I can just keep this list of rules and regulations... Uh, and then, hey, then we're all good. It's a mechanical and, and a, a very um, uh, somewhat disconnected way, legalistic way, to sort of satisfy some inner uh, reasoning that we can get right with God by keeping rules and regulations. Religion is very good at that. But we're not called to do that, we are called to have that relationship with Christ. And so the point that the Israelites were struggling with was, hey, this is actually a relationship. We've got to work on this, but it's a lot simpler if we just go back to our system and follow it along. And so they were leaning back to the keeping of their rules and ticking the box as a form of their righteous standing, But the writer of Hebrews is warning them. He's saying, maintain their hope that they have come to in Christ and hold fast that confidence and the rejoicing of hope to the end. Hold that place. You know, it's a sad fact that some people who come to Christ, they experience that saving grace and they rejoice in the fact their sins have been forgiven for sure. But over time they start to add on all manners of rules and regulations and traditions into their lives. And they become burdened and under bondage to some man-made and self-imposed laws. And they forget and they move away from the simplicity of that childlike faith in God and his grace and by the means by which they are saved. Our hope is only ever in Christ and in him alone and in the work that he has done. There was no place for, for, for looking to God in any other way outside the appreciation of his grace toward us. But true commitment to Christ is demonstrated over a period of time, over the long term, you might say, not an initial burst. Uh, Paul spoke of this in Philippines. He, has begun a good, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. It's that ongoing work. Peter speaks also about a house, whose house we are mentioned here in this passage. But Peter speaks about that, saying that we are being built up a spiritual house, coming to him as living stones. You also, he says, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. You see, God has a work to do and is working to build through his people even as one might build a house. Now the application of the fact of Jesus' superiority uh, to Moses we see in the next few verses and it's a a quotation from Psalm 95. Look what it says uh, there, uh, verse uh, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Now if those who followed Moses were responsible to surrender, to trust, and persevere, in following God's leader... Moses, then how much more are we responsible to do the same with a greater leader, Jesus? That's the the logic and that's the the line of thought that the writer is taking. Speaking here about the day of trial, 
probably a few days of trial, but certainly one of them that's no doubt referred to is the, the trial at Meribah. Uh, back in Numbers 20, we read about this, the children of Israel, that uh, they were in the wilderness of Zin, and there was no water. And they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron, and they contended with them. And they said, if only. How often do we say this word? If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of figs or, or grain or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. So here we see uh, one of the examples where they've forgotten the goodness of God. They've forgotten that God has actually brought them out of bondage. And all they're thinking of is what Egypt had for them back there. You can be sure that this also is symbolic of many times in our own lives. We move forward in, in the way God has worked in our lives. We take, take a positive step forward somewhere, you can be sure things will come against us. There will be difficulties. And we'll start thinking back to the old ways. Oh man, it, was, it wasn't so bad back there when I was a rat bag. At least I had water to drink, you know, whatever the case might be. And, and you forget that, well, actually back there I was under bondage, I was a slave, and every, all the bad stuff that was going on, uh, life is, is, is now I'm in, in Christ and life is, is a whole lot better. Uh, but we tend to forget that, don't we? And we start looking back. And Israel really is a reflection of the heart of man as we see what is often expressed is the thing that we also feel at times. And so the Israelites, they're, they're getting thirsty and they're just thinking, man, we should have stayed back in Egypt. At least we had some pomegranates to eat. And so Moses and Aaron, you know, they, they were distraught. They went and cried out to God. God said, hey, take your rod. Go before the people. Remember, they're thirsty. Speak to the rock and it will yield its water. Give them water to drink and their animals. What did Moses do? Well, you know, <laughs> they gathered the people together, and this is what Moses said Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And he, Moses, he lifted his hand and struck the rock, rock twice with his rod, and water came out. The congregation and the animals drank, and the Lord said, Hey, because you did not believe me, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, and to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which was given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So interesting experience there, where Moses didn't represent God accurately. But also this day of, of trial, generally it speaks of Israel's refusal to trust and enter the promised land. Remember how Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, hey, let us go up and take possession of this land. We're able to, to take it. That he'd gone out with the spies and checked it out and come back. Hey, God can do this. But those who, the others who had gone up and said, oh, no, we can't. We can't do this. There's giants in the land. They're stronger than us. And they gave the, the people a bad report and they said, hey, you know, these inhabitants, the people of great stature. And the congregation lifted up their voices and cried out and, and, and wept. They complained again. <laughs> they complained to Moses and Aaron with those same words again. If only... If only we'd have died in the land of Egypt. And they said, hey, you know, let's find someone else as a leader 
and it'll lead us back to Egypt. Once again, the same idea. Hey, you know, let's go back. This is we're missing the the gallics and the leeks of Egypt. And we can do the same thing in our own lives, you know, as we're making spiritual progress as we step out. We run into difficulties, we run into struggles that causes us to think, man, oh, you know, there were things that were so much better back then. And we, we forget that, hey, back then we were really in a bad shape. It's interesting, isn't it, as you, as you think back in life and, and, and things kind of, you look through rosy coloured glasses and... As the old bumper sticker saying, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> but it's a bit like that, isn't it? You know, you think of those times, you know, the, the good old days. You know, when I were a boy kind of thing, and, and as if everything was fantastic. We tend to forget that things weren't that, that cool. It's just that we forget the bad parts, and we tend to just sort of uh, elevate the good experiences. But in reality, there was just as much drive back then as there is now. Uh, you know, we still had issues in life and so on and so forth. And here, the Israelites are, have, have captured that. And they're looking back. They've forgotten what life was like in bondage in Israel. And now they're actually out of bondage. And now they're actually being led by God. Now they've come into a place where God is leading them in their life. Uh, run into a bit of strife that they, they sort of think, oh, we, if only we were back in Egypt. What they're saying, oh, if only we were back under bondage. If only we were back in that place where, you know, the, 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 the Egyptians were over us and, and so on and so forth. But of course they can't think about that. They've sort of forgotten that idea. But how that will grip our hearts. How we need to be real that, hey, in the, in the way forward in progress, in spiritual things, there will be a battle. The enemy will do all he can to sidetrack us and to beat us down. But God did not accept their unbelief and condemn that generation uh, to die in the wilderness. And because of their unbelief, the, the Israelites faced judgment, which culminated after 40 years. And so this warning in Hebrews was written also interesting, about 40 years after the Jews' initial rejection of Jesus. And God's wrath was quickly uh, coming upon those, that generation, uh, which would be seen in the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, so there's an interesting kind of a, uh, you might say, parallel there. God's anger was kindled against that generation on, on account of the un unbelief. They refused to trust God for the great things he had promised and were unwilling to persist, the unwilling to continue on and trust. And so the word we have in the next verse, beware. So the writer says, hey, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And so a bit of a history lesson has been given to the, the Hebrews. And a reminder to us. It's strong language here, but we often underestimate uh, the nature of unbelief. Refusing to believe God is indeed a serious uh, sin because it shows the, this heart and a departing from God. It said that unbelief is not inability to understand, but unwillingness to trust. It is the will, not the intelligence, that is involved. The example often used of a, a guy, a tightrope walker, who, who would um, put his rope across the, the Niagara Falls. And he was walking back and forth. People, crowds were watching. Fantastic. He put a wheelbarrow on there and he wheeled the wheelbarrow back and forth. I think he had something in it. And uh, <clears throat> everyone thought this was fantastic. He said to a fellow, do you, do you reckon I could wheel a person across there? 
Yeah, no problem. You could do that. Hop in. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> now, his intellect said he could, but he was not willing. And I can understand that for sure. Uh, he was not willing to, you know, really put that into uh, <laughs> practicality or to apply it. Uh, but he, intellectually, he could understand that, yeah, he can do that. And that's really the, the difference, isn't it? Unbelief is not the inability to understand. But it is the unwillingness to trust. That's why it's such a serious issue. We can truly believe God, yet be occasionally troubled by doubts. That's another whole thing. There is a doubt that wants God's promises, but is weak in faith at that moment. But unbelief isn't weakness of faith, but rather unbelief sets itself in opposition to faith. It was Spurgeon who said this. Um, <clears throat> he said, did I not hear someone say, oh, sir, I've been trying to believe for years. Terrible words. They make the case still worse. Imagine that I had made that statement. A man should declare that he did not believe me. In fact, he could not believe me, though he would like to do so. I should feel aggrieved, certainly, but it would, not make, but it would make matters worse if he added, in fact, I have been for years trying to believe you and I cannot do it. What does he mean by that? What can he mean but that I am so false and such a confirmed liar that though he would like to give me some credit, he really cannot do it. With all the effort he can make in my favour, he finds it quite beyond his power to believe me. Now a man who says I've been trying to believe in God, in reality says just that with regard to the Most High. Heavy words, aren't they? And so... The writer exhorts us with the words, exhort one another. Exhort one another daily. It will strengthen our faith and avoid the ruin of unbelief. Exhort, it means to seriously encourage. How we need to encourage one another. How we need to be exhorted. Now, it's very easy to judge and criticise people. And it's easy to do that. Well, what we're called to do is exhort one another to seriously encourage each other because we're all under attack. It's a rather sad observation, but one I've seen over and over again. When a person is in great need of being exhorted, of being encouraged, rather than seek a place where that can happen, they tend to isolate themselves and descend into misery upon misery. Reject all connection, reject all communication, reject all offers of, of fellowship. The sin of unbelief has its roots in deceit. Unbelief hardens us. Notice, lest any of you be hardened. Unbelief in sin is deceitful because when we are unbelieving towards God, we don't stop believing, we just simply start believing in a deception. Still going to believe something. If we have become partakers of Christ, if we really have heard his voice, then we will hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, it's not speaking about having times of doubt, having times of upset, having times of, of, of be, being derailed in some form or, or struggling with issues. Uh, the whole point is, is the longevity of holding steadfast to the, that understanding of who God is. Paul communicated the same idea back in that verse we've, we've mentioned, Philippians 1.6, that ongoing work that God will complete in the day of Christ it speaks of the ongoing work of God in the life of the believer. It doesn't mean that one day or every day will be full of joyous experiences in Christ. Bad and tough and unfair things happen. Happiness is dependent on what is happening to us. If what's happening doesn't make us happy, it doesn't mean God has changed or even necessarily that we have changed. It does mean that we're human. Faith in God and endurance is not based on feeling. 
But it isn't enough to just sort of leave the matter with a sort of fatalistic uh, thought that if you're really saved that you will endure. We have to realise that God uses these warnings and appeals to our will and his appointed means to build endurance in us. We often say our hearts have been hardened by other, others or by circumstance, but the fact is we harden our own hearts in response to what we may have experienced. But ultimately, hardening of the heart is a choice. And that's why that, that, that the word is given, do not harden your hearts. The, the passage continues, verse 16, who, or For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, as a nation, Israel made a great beginning. After all, it took a lot of faith to cross the Red Sea. Yet all of that first generation perished in the wilderness, except two men of faith, Joshua and Caleb. And 11 times in, 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 uh, in Hebrews 3 and 4, it speaks of entering rest. That rest will be detailed in the next chapter, but here the key to entering rest is revealed, and that is belief. You see, they could not enter because of unbelief. Now, one might be tempted to think that the key to entering rest is obedience, especially from back there in verse 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his respite to those who did not obey? But disobedience mentioned there is an outgrowth of unbelief. Unbelief leads to disobedience. Now in the New Testament context, our belief centres on the superiority of Christ, the truth of who he is, fully God and fully man, and his atoning work for us as a faithful high priest. That is why the writer makes it strong and clear. When we trust in these things, making them the food of our souls, that is when we enter into God's rest. You see, Israel's great failure was to, to, to persevere in faith. After crossing much of the wilderness, trusting in God, and after seeing so many uh, reasons to trust in him, they end up falling short because they did not persevere in faith in God and in his promise. And so Jesus reminded us in the parable of the soils, with the seeds cast on, on different types of ground. You can make a good beginning, but real belief perseveres to the end. If we've made a good, good start, praise God. But how we finish is even more important than how we start. C.S. Lewis was an interesting uh, fellow, interesting writer, and uh, very engaging in, in, in his... Um, in his works and his contemplation and how he spoke and wrote about things as a Christian. And if you've ever read the Screwtape Letters, it's rather fascinating. It's sort of this idea that um, it's a fictional... Uh, in his, his kind of idea, he's created this idea of, of, of sort of the um, evil spirits talking to each other about how they can sort of bring down Christians. That's basically in a, in a nutshell what they're talking about. So he, 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 a little excerpt from, from one of those books is here. The enemy has guarded him from you through the first great wave of t temptation. So here, speaking of the difficulty of, pers of, of persevering uh, from, from uh, attempting uh, demons' fictional perspective. That, that's that's uh, what's behind this. The enemy has guarded him from... From you through the first great wave of temptations, but if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. And so, remember, this is the, the, the demons having this sort of discussion. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures, talking about there, the, the believer, to persevere. 
The routine of, advers of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and, and joyful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All of this proves admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years form prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really he, it is finding its place in him. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unravelling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. That's the enemy who is trying to come against us, trying to wear us out by attrition, to try and get us to the place of not believing. Now you can be sure the <laughs> Israelites endured a lot of stuff, and many of them were worn down. When I left school, I, I started at a, a, a carpentry apprenticeship, and, and uh, one of the early early days of, of um, on the job, an old uh, tradesman came up to me. He held up his hand, and it was looking like that. You see that? And he went, he'd lost a finger in a in a um, <clears throat> in a saw. He said, "Machines." are very patient. They don't, it doesn't matter whether it's the first day on the job or the last. They're just happy to wait until you're not watching and ching! You know, you'll have your fingers in the sawdust. And it's a bit like that. The enemy is also very patient. He's content to just slowly wear you down through things like unbelief. The subtle work of the enemy. It's important for us to notice that the failure of Israel was the failure of faith. They did not believe God was able to bring them into the land. Somehow they were looking at their own resources. They were looking at the power of the enemy and they're saying, hey, we can't do it, we're, we're unable to go in. On that point, they were quite right. But they didn't go to the next step and say, well, <laughs> God can. Many times we find that it is our unbelief that keeps us from entering into that full rich life that God would have us experience and enjoy. Our problem is our looking at our own resources and looking at the power of the enemy always when we get our eyes off God and onto the enemy, terror fills our hearts and unbelief overwhelms. We've got to know that, the, that there is a greater power that is with us than that which is against us. John, 1 John 4.4 4, Greater is he that is in you than is he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you. That's not our own ability, that is God. We don't have in our own strength the ability to overwhelm the enemy, but God does. We need to keep close to the one who provides that. And so Jesus, the high priest of our confession, greater than Moses and that Moses was only a servant, Jesus the son ruling over the house, and the builder of the house, Moses is unable to take them into God's rest, whereas Jesus will bring us into God's rest. And so if we think about that for a moment and just sort of cast our thoughts back over the landscape that we've just travelled today, as we reflect on this passage, which is Hebrews 3, it's interesting to me that, and indeed significant, that Moses, what does he represent? He represents the law. He represents the works of the law. It's interesting to observe the fact that the law or the Moses or the works of the law can never bring you into the place of rest in the Lord. Moses himself couldn't get into the promised land. By your obedience to the law, by your keeping of the law, it will never bring you into rest. The law cannot bring you into the rest of God just as Moses was unable to bring the people into the promised land. The people provoked God in their history. They came to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. It's only an 11-day journey from Mount Horeb, just when they got over the Red Sea. Uh, from, from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, it was only an 11-day journey, uh, the scripture says, but it took them 40 years. 
They came to Kadesh Barnea in the beginning. They sent spies to the land. They came back. Uh, all of that had happened. Uh, their hearts were, were, were turned against God, resulted in unbelief. They said, we can't go in. We can't do it. We can't take the land. Uh, <clears throat> and God was provoked. And he says, okay, you're not trusting in me. Uh, you say you're afraid to go in there and your children will be killed. I'll tell you what, this is going to be the longest funeral procession in history. You're going to stay out here in the wilderness until you all die out and your children will inherit. They will the ones who will go in. And they never entered into God's rest. Moses couldn't bring them into God's rest. And he quotes from that psalm as the psalm is talking about the goodness of God, the mercies of God and all. He turns to the subject of their, of their, their, um, their failure in the wilderness and he says, harden not your hearts. As in the days of rebellion. These people had been delivered from Egypt. They'd come out of the bondage of Egypt. The issue isn't the deliverance from sin. The issue is the entering into the fullness that God has. There are people who have peace with God and in that they have been delivered from the power of sin, from darkness into the kingdom of light, for sure. But they don't have the peace of God They've not entered into that rest. They haven't entered into the full, rich and abundant life of the spirit that God has promised. And their Christian experience can become a wilderness. Wandering through the wilderness, not really enjoying their walk with the Lord they, as they should be enjoying. It's sort of a constant trial. God wants you to come into that fullness of the life of the spirit of God, to know that victory in the spirit within your own life, entering into that rich fullness with the Lord and so Jesus the high priest of our confession greater than Moses and that Moses was only a servant in the house Jesus the son ruling over the house the builder of the house Moses unable to take them into God's rest Jesus will bring us into God's rest what does that mean what does that look like it might seem like a strange illustration but over the years I've had, a, had the odd bungee jump Hey, be rude not to. And the last, uh, last one I had was, uh, was um, off the cover of our bridge at uh, Queenstown. And uh, <coughs> the fellow who was tying the elastic band to my legs gave me some advice, which I heard it was good advice. He says, um, don't look down. People who look down usually freak out and won't jump. Look at the horizon. So I got myself into, into position, looked at the horizon, and then over we go, Trev, you know. <laughs> and you enter into that strange space of free fall. And I'm thinking, is my will up to date? <laughs> Did I give all my passwords to my wife? Will they miss me when I'm gone? All of those things are replaced by a degree of comfort when I feel the, the, the elastic band take up and I realise, well, he did actually tie on, it hasn't forgotten. Any sense of comfort is soon replaced by the uh, most uncomfortable feeling of everything inside my body, inside my cavity, inside my stomach, the porridge that I'd had for breakfast, <laughs> everything in there. It's trying to find its way into my head. And <clears throat> as, a, as a decelerator course, and for a moment of time, my head is underwater. That soon changed by suddenly heading you know, north towards the sun again at some incredible rate. And we'd so do this up and down, bouncing around for a while, uh, eventually get loaded into a boat, hauled over to the to the rocks, uh, sitting there, thinking, man, how much did I pay for that? <laughs> now, the whole point of that is not to really, you know, give you the, the rundown of bungee jumping. It's rather to think about where's your focus. You see, replace that looking at the horizon with Jesus. See, too often if we look down, we're not going to step out. We need to focus on Christ. 
Because if we look down, we see the obstacles, we see all the things that are going to freak us out, and we're not going to step forward into the things that Christ has for us. As we get on through in the Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You see, fix your sights on him. That is where you find the perspective to negotiate the issues of life and the issues of faith. That is where you find balance in life. That is how you prevent yourself from becoming distracted or overly fixated on lesser issues. You know, society seems to be running on steroids. Many people kind of dashing around with the hair on fire. Hot under the collar about a myriad of things, no doubt all with varying degrees of importance. But not the most important. If you're a follower of Christ, or if indeed you are seeking the real meaning of life, and if you're looking for true peace and hope, keep your eyes firmly focused on Christ. That is where you will find that true and personal relationship with Christ. Firstly, you must be born again. And then move forward in the life of the Spirit. Find that place of rest. We live in a place that is restless. The world around us is restless. Our rest is found in Christ. And it's interesting that that, that, that will be developed through uh, Hebrews, that, that entering that rest, that, that our Sabbath rest and all that. Remember <laughs> those great words. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, we can enter the rest that has been created for us in Christ Jesus. I just wanted to... Uh, <clears throat> To finish on a few words of one of the Psalms, you see, what I'm saying is neither rocket science nor new. And it's, I think, it's essentially declared in Psalm 121. I'm just going to read a couple of uh, verses from the beginning of that Psalm. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Interesting thought, lifting up your eyes. You know, when we're down, we tend to look down. When we're beaten down, we look down. And so here, very practical stuff here. Of course, this is a Psalm of Ascents, but I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? It's a question, it's not a statement at that point. Verse 2 answers the question, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The one who made and created the hills that you're looking at. As you're looking up, there is something about that to get your focus back onto Christ. Just as the instruction to look at the horizon before stepping out, may we look at Christ and of course the idea wasn't to look at the horizon and just stand there for the rest of the day. Look at the horizon and step out. Look at Christ and step forward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for, for your promise. The promise of entering in your rest. And that, our, that true rest is found only in you. As we live in the midst of a very restless world, even in the midst of that, we can find perfect rest in you. Lord, as we just put into the right full perspective the things around us and the distractions, the things which have a degree of importance, may they find their natural level, but may our focus be upon you. May we truly enter that rest, that rest of knowing who you are. If there is anyone who doesn't know that, is there anyone here who, who does, have, has never entered uh, that place of firstly acknowledging their need of a saviour, that sin has separated us from you and you've provided through Christ a means of salvation. And I pray that you would speak to that person's life and heart and mind this morning. To anyone who is feeling like they're stuck in the wilderness and, and, and unbelief has prevented them from stepping further forward and truly into the rest that you provide, that, Lord, that you would give them the, the, uh, the clarity of heart and mind this morning of what that means, what that looks like, that indeed in faith they can step forward in, in belief and receive the work that you desire to do in their hearts. May you create that hunger, desire and fill their 
being with fulfillment that only comes from you. Lord, may you move us, each of us, into greater awareness and appreciation of who you are and what you have done. May our focus be upon you, that you might give us balance in life and keep all other things in order. Father, I thank you that your promises are real, that you are faithful. You are the high priest who represents us to God, but who also represents God to us. May we learn at your feet and allow your characteristics in nature to impact us, to flow out from us. May we apply the things that you, that you give and, and instruct us in, that we indeed might be faithful in the things you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, shall we, and just conclude in worship and, and maybe just allow the, the thoughts that we have and, and, and the work of God's Spirit just to, to, just to dwell. And, and maybe there are things that you would like to pray about or pray with someone. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that today, either as we're concluding now or afterwards. Come and speak to one of us. And Jake's at the back. Uh, you, you know, use the opportunity we have to pray that we might exhort one another, encourage one another in these days. Thank you.